Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning of the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Our final scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning with verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Will you be in an attitude of prayer with me? Dear Lord, examine our hearts. We pray that when we receive the elements representing your body and blood in the moments to come, that we are right with you. We ask your forgiveness for those things that we have done that separate us from you. Bless these moments in which we commemorate your act of ultimate selflessness and great love, which allows us to be joined with you for all eternity. Lord, we pray today for those who are in great need of your healing and strength. We lift up in prayer Chris Wright and his family. We pray that doctors at the University of Iowa can determine what is causing his illness and find the best way to treat it. We also pray for Chelsea Gagola and Lucas Larson, who were hospitalized earlier this week, and ask for your healing hand to speed their recovery as well. And Lord, we also lift up the family of Gail Batchelder, who passed away earlier this week, and we just pray that your love and concern and care will be with them as they prepare to lay him to rest this week. Father, we pray for your servant, Pastor Mike, and for the message that you've given him to share today. May your Holy Spirit guide him and give him the words that we need to hear. Open our hearts and minds as we prepare to receive your word through him. This we pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, throughout my talk this morning, it's okay if you want to look past me and drink in the meaning of the visual that's been put in front of you. I, I certainly approve that, and certainly um, we have put it there for the purpose that you might drink that in and understand richly um, where we're going today. I want to tell you two truths this morning, and this is where we're going. First, I want to tell you a simple truth. The world in which we live out our days, the world in which we're living, is broken. It is broken. There is a huge schism in it. You might have had the same experience I did over the last couple of weeks when you looked at the, the, in your newspaper or your internet news provider or wherever it is, and you looked at the top stories of 2012. I want to give you a quick review, because when I looked at the top stories of 2012, I realized again that the world in which I'm living is significantly broken. One of the top stories of 2012 was this horrible monstrosities that happened and played out at Pennsylvania State University, and all of the, the stories that surrounded that. Our world is broken. The top story, of course, because it happened towards the end of the year, is, is this horrible tragedy of the fractured mind that, that played out in Newton, Newtown, Connecticut. Our world is broken. And then there was the story of this glorious, beautiful movie star and, and wonderful singer named Whit Whitney Houston, who, who fell actually to death at her own hand because her life and her mind and her heart was so broken. And then I read about a new record that we had set in America this year, two new records in America this year. One is that 875,000 divorces were administered last year in the United States. That's one record. A second record we set this year was that we now have 1.6 million people in prison in the United States. The world is broken. And not only that, but, but, but 24 countries in Africa, 15 countries in Asia, 8 countries in Europe, Five countries in the Americas are at war right now in the world. The truth of the matter is simple, and it's clear. The world in which we are living is broken. And there is a second truth. We cannot fix it. We cannot fix it. We wish we could. But we cannot, because this truth has rung throughout the generations. Humanity cannot solve the problem with humanity. Humanity has not been able to solve the problem with humanity. And it's not for a lack of trying. I mean, over the years, from, from the beginning of time, 
people have postulated and said, this is what we must do to solve the problem of this brokenness we have in the world. And there have been people that have tried to regulate. And there have been people that have tried to legislate. So we've postulated, we've regulated, we've legislated, we've, we, we've, 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 we've done all these things, but we cannot solve the problem with humanity. And you've seen it play out. A number of years ago, this church, through some of what I was talking about a moment ago, was involved with the Nothing But Nets campaign. You know, 15 years ago, a person would die in a third world country every 30 seconds from malaria. Now, malaria is a preventable disease. And and a bunch of scientists have come together and developed these mosquito nets that have uh, embedded right in them the repellent that keeps the mosquitoes out. And if you sleep under that, if you put your little child under that, or if you put your whole family underneath that mosquito net at night, you know, the chances of you getting malaria malaria from a mosquito bite in the middle of the night drop, you know, exponentially. And, And so we have this ability to rid the entire world of malaria. We don't have it really in the U.S., you know. We, we had the possibility. We got involved with this nothing but nets. And for $10, you could buy these mosquito nets to go over. You know, and of course, families, once they got one, you know, you'd send one to one family. They'd all sleep underneath them because they didn't want to die. And, and, the, and the, the death rate from malaria went from one person every 30 seconds in, in just a small period of time. One person every 30 seconds to now the death rate from malaria is one person a minute, which is still a huge number of people dying from a preventable disease. So why isn't it solved yet? Is it because the world doesn't have enough money? We've got more money than we've ever had before. Is it because we ran out of the chemicals to make these nets? No. Is it because we ran out of the raw materials to put the actual nets together or the, or, or the UPS or somebody that was delivering them broke down? No, that's not any of the problems. Well, what is the problem? Why haven't we solved this? Well, it's similar to every other concern in the world. We haven't solved the problem because humanity can't solve the problem with humanity because the problem with humanity is that our hearts, unfortunately, tend to focus ultimately on ourselves. We tend to be get, get fused with, with, our hearts get focused on selfishness or greed. And because of that, the world is broken. You see, the problem with humanity is our hearts. And we can't fix it ourselves. And so, of course, the Lord, like us, knows since we can't fix our own problem, that someone can help us. We need outside help for a solution. And the Lord's solution was to offer us a new heart. His own heart. In the heart of Jesus Christ. Now, when we take Holy Communion today, the most important thing that we're doing is celebrating the solution to humanity's problem that has been granted to us, which is the Lord offers His heart to us in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. In this whole month, Keith and I are going to lead you through some moments of covenant and commitment to deeply engage you, we pray and hope, in the things that we do and use as the symbols of our faith in a deeper way. And of course, today, from the very moment that this service started, you understood that we're talking about communion. Now, I want to share with you four things about communion that I think it affirms. First, communion affirms God's commitment to our deliverance. We're broken. We can't solve the problem. 
and we need a deliverance. Do you remember this shipping, uh, this cargo ship called the Maersk, Alabama? You remember when the Somalia uh, pirates got on that thing and they overtook the crew and the United States government, realizing that there were U.S. citizens running that thing, pledged to deliver them? Do you remember that? And those people out there were, were certain that help was coming. They couldn't solve the problem themselves. All they had was fire hoses and stuff. But came the Navy SEALs. And over a period of days, the Navy SEALs, through the techniques that you know all about, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on because they're the experts in this, but they were able to execute a plan in such a way that they delivered the captain and the crew of the Mirsk, Alabama, because they committed to it and they went and did it. Now, we love a physical deliverance because it's tangible. We can put our hands on that. We can see that, that that's necessary because if we ever need a deliverance of any kind, if someone's <clears throat> oppressing us or holding us down or, or, or doing some vile and terrible thing, we de- desire deliverance too. We know that we need, if we can't solve the problem ourselves, we know that we hope and pray that someone will come and, and deliver us from it, that they'll, that they'll rescue uh, it for us. And see, at communion, that's what we see in, in, in God's action. We know we need a deliverance. God knows we need a deliverance, and God affirms his commitment to it in communion. The whole Jesus incarnation says, I will come. I will come for you. Because God, and if you're brokenhearted today, for any reason, be very aware that Scripture is clear about this, is that God is near, very near, to the brokenhearted. Ask and he will come. He will come. And God says, I will come to you. And he says, I have come to you. See, this is death to Jesus. The the cross is death to the Lord. But it's life and deliverance to us. And God is that committed. He's committed to the death of his son for the life of his greater group of children. I will come He says, I have come, now you come to me. Whether you kneel down or whether you take it from a little cup and a a little piece of square of bread or if you rip it off, come to me and take and eat. There's no miracle in the bread. The miracle is what the bread represents to us and celebrates is that our God is committed to us. You see, this is God's commitment to our deliverance, please do not take it lightly. I know we have it every month. And I know that there's lines. And I know that you see that there's other people. And I know that there's clocks on your watches. But don't take it lightly. I have. I've walked through the motions before. You know, you can nod in your heart because you don't want to raise your hand. But there are some of us here, lots of us here, that have taken communion and taken it very lightly before. And it is God's commitment our deliverance that we're affirming here. Secondly, God offers an opportunity at communion for a heart check. He gives us an opportunity for a heart check. This, this 
thing with the lines and everything. It's hard to recalibrate your life, you know, when you know you're standing in line and certainly you're going to become next sooner or later and you're going to have to do the right thing. You know, we always, you know, we've taken communion a hundred times and still we get confused. Do we dip the bread in the juice or do we drink the cup? What, what do we do? You know, we, we, so we focus on that. We focus on the logistic of it. But the fact of the matter is communion, well, first of all, it's okay. You know, if you drop a floater in the communion cup, it's okay. It happens all the time. If you spill the communion bread or juice, it's okay, you know, because this is for you. And God knows what happens at your tables. How many of you have tables that you've never spilled at? I mean, seriously. I got one kid still spills every time we eat. And she's not seven. Right now, huh? But, but, but understand this. This is a time, even though there's a line and all that, to recalibrate your hearts to some heavenly coordinates. I just went on vacation. I just got back from vacation. Thank you very much for letting us go. But one of the things that kids and wife in my car laugh about, they always have this running count. How many U-turns will dad take during vacation? You have that? You have that in your life? You know, when you're driving in Cedar Rapids in the city, you know, the, the street signs are like this big, First Avenue, and you like know right where to go. You go to Memphis, where I went, I don't know why they don't want you to find your way around. They printed their street signs like on business cards, right? Stuck them up there. I mean, seriously, like, okay, is this Poplar Street? Yeah, that was it. All right. You know, they pull the U-turn, you know, and like if I lived in that town, I would never take the U-turns where I took them, right? You, you would not, I mean, you would not, if you were lost in First Avenue, you would never just spin a U-turn in First Avenue, would you? But when you're visiting, you're like, ah, I can just claim I'm out of town. And of course, so, several years ago, being, you know, loving, my kids, you know, I was a map guy, you can find it on the map, they got me a GPS. You know what this Australian chick on my GPS is saying to me all the time now? Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. I'm like, come on, that's not even nice, you know? It's like, don't worry, I can fix it with another U-turn. It's all right. You know, because they, they, they tell you, turn now. like, You know, I mean, and, and that's, but that's how our lives are, isn't it? Sometimes we need to take full U-turns. We, we, when that GPS is saying to me, recalculating, 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 it's really just saying to, to me, are you heading the right way? We don't think you're heading the right way. You're not heading the right way. In, in 1 Corinthians that, that, that uh, Keith read a moment ago, it says this about communion. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread or drinking the wine to know where your heart's at, to give yourself a heart check. See, Holy Communion, let it be a real heart check, not just a liturgical moment, not something that we, we do all the time. Have you ever been to a church that doesn't take communion seriously? I, I've been to those churches. I was, I, I've been at two in the last year, and they make me really nervous because I don't think they get the message. I was at a church not too long ago worshiping when, when, when I was on vacation, and right during one of the songs, they said, okay, there's communion stations over here and over here, and if you have the need for that, go to it. And I'm like, about 20 people went. I'm like, I don't know if they get it or not. I don't know if they don't get it. And then I was at a, a birthday celebration. I was invited to a birthday celebration. I was at a different kind of church than, than what we're at, and at the end of the service, they were having communion. And then at the end of that 
communion celebration, there was going to be a birthday blessing for this 80-year-old friend of mine, and I thought it was going to be awesome, you know, because like all the people were there. And then they, when the way they take communion at that church, when he started the birthday blessing, I was like, man, it feels weird in here. I turn around, half the church was gone. More than half the church. They'd just taken communion and kept walking. No introspection, no reflection, no time to recalibrate their hearts. I think they knew that the 80-year-old birthday party was coming, so they were just making a break for the cake. I don't know. But, but it was sad to me, the, the frivolous nature, or maybe that's wrong, the routine nature that Holy Communion had taken. Because, see, this is a pretty big deal. This is an opportunity to really make significant course corrections in your life. To really push back from yourself and take a look at yourself and say, I know I can't solve the problems of humanity, and God, but God has given me the opportunity to see how I might correct right now. See, the imperfect people in the world, and that's you and me, get opportunities all the time at worship to make course corrections. That little GPS that sits on my dashboard does not know my intent. It only knows where I am. So when I'm trying to do U-turns in a, in a mall parking lot to try to get per- pointed the right way I go, all it can tell me is you're going the wrong way. It doesn't know why I'm there. It doesn't know what my intent is. It only knows where I'm at. Now, here's the thing about you and, and me. We know our intent. And so when we come down this morning, or before you come down, it's probably a more appropriate time. We must ask ourselves, is my heart right? Is the intent for my heart to be pointed right? You know the course that you're on in life. You know where you find yourself all the time. Is it a holy place? Is it a holy course that you've set? Is it one that, of course, God already knows where you're at, but are your intentions on the course that you're taking and the course that you're going on right now, do they match the Lord's? Does does your direction fit with this? Now, thirdly, celebration is a, commu- a cel- communion is a celebration of joy. See, Christianity is to be marked with joy and celebration, joy and generosity, joy and celebration. See, Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, Kierkegaard was a uh, Danish philosopher. He wrote this in his journal once. It's a saddening text he wrote. He wrote, I have been to church today, and I have come home not depressed. How sad is that? The expectations of Kierkegaard and his generation was to go to church and come back feeling worse than when he left. Now, here we are in worship, and the very essence of worship is to praise and adore our God and, and to say praise the Lord and to, and to sing out His praises. And yet I have seen so many situations and even led a couple of churches who at their beginning had this essence to us where they were kind of like Eeyore in their praise. You know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Praise the Lord, I guess, you know. And, and we'd be singing our songs and, and I get when you get older, you know, I don't smile, I guess, as much as I used to. You know, you just, I don't know, it sinks or something. I don't know what's going on with that. But it's where our hearts are at, you see. Because, you know, worship 
And being with God is supposed to be like, have you ever seen a little kid, little children? I mean, you all are involved with little children in some way. And when you tell them something exciting, when you say, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese, they're like, they're so excited. They're doing that hand clap. You know, somewhere along the line, probably we do it once in junior high. We're like, hey, you guys got pizza for lunch? We go, that's stupid. Stop doing that. And it's like somebody sucks that away from us, which is unfortunate because there's this pure, unadulterated joy coming out. In, in the, and I mean unadulterated. No adults are involved in it. There's this joy that's coming out from their heart. And at worship, when we think of our Lord, when we're in concert with our Lord, that, that's how we should feel. We should have this huge joy and celebration going going on in our heart now i'm not recommending although i permit i mean i'm all about expressive worship you want to start rolling in the aisles you want to start waving your hands you know and during the hymns i'm good with that you want to start clapping i think as long as you're expressing what your faith is and your joy that's fine but that is not what i'm talking about here i'm talking about an attitude of the heart and i had a very piercing conversation with one of the men of my previous congregation about this. He came up to me, and I'm sure I had, had preached some other talk uh, similar to this. I've been at this a little while about joy in that congregation and about how, you know, when we sing, we have the joy, joy, joy down in our heart, down in our heart to say that it's really joy, and joy is different than happiness and all that kind of stuff, you know. But he came up to me after the church, and it didn't accost me. He, he actually had some, like, real brokenness going on. He says, Pastor Mike, my daily life is caring for my wife of 45 years who is bed-stricken with cancer. I feed her. I clothe her. I wash her. I watch television with her. I read the upper room to her. That is my whole life. It is impossible for me, and don't ever advertise to me that I need to come to worship and have synthetic joy. I've never forgotten that phrase. Synthetic joy, fake joy, made up joy. And I say, exactly. Fake joy is not joy. That's acting. We don't need actors in church. We need authentic, genuine folks. And, and what he told me and what I knew is this, that the world is broken. It's groaning. It, it, it's it's got all of this brokenness in it. You know, people that, whose, whose lives are being shattered because they've got a child that's gone rogue or because a relationship in their life with, with a spouse or someone at work has gone difficult or someone, you know, we have people that just don't have enough money. We have people that, that, that are, are struggling with the careers they have. We have people that are struggling with depression and difficulty and schizophrenia and illness and all that. And the world is groaning and it has no need for us and it is so anti-Christian of us to come into the... To, to the worshiping congregation and try to give synthetic joy because the victory, you see, is not synthetic. What communion is about is sharing with you that the victory over your groaning, the victory over your brokenness is already guaranteed. Now, I, I'm not a fan of the Green Bay Packers, but I know some of you are, but but if you had taped that game, if you had recorded that game last night, and, and you weren't able to come, you know, watch it last night, and then you had responsibilities today, and you weren't able to watch it till this afternoon, probably between then and now, somebody would have slipped to you the result by accident and said, oh, the Packers won. And you know what happens when you know the victory is yours? 
you get, you get so relieved. Because even though you might want to watch the game as if it's happening real, when you know the result, you don't sit there, you know, I've never seen someone watch it on videotape, a game they knew the result, jump up in the middle and say, I can't believe you let him get sacked. That's so awesome. Oh, we're not going to look. Because you know what the end result is. It's like patience. Don't worry. Don't know how it turns. Don't know how it turns from here. But it gets much better for our team because we already know the result. See, communion is a celebration of authentic joy because we already know the result. This groaning, this difficulty in our lives is a hardship of every kind. I don't know your individual hardships, but I I do know that you have some. And the groaning will go on for, for a little while, but communion is a celebration of the simple truth of Jesus Christ who says, soon and very soon, soon and very soon, while the world in which we live is broken and we can't fix it, soon and very soon, the day will come when there shall be no more tears, no more crying, no more parting, no more death, no more sadness anymore. Because the victory is yours in Jesus Christ. See, our joy cannot be contained. It can't be just held to ourselves because of this. Christians should live lives of such joy and generosity because they already know the results. We already know our God wins. Our God prevails. Our life is saved. Our deliverance is granted. And because of that, we can walk around, even though there's pain in us, and there will be, even though there's difficulty among us, we can be a magnet for people for the sake of Jesus Christ. I mean, Christians in the New Testament, when you look at the book of Acts, the Christians were a magnet because of how they loved and what they did. People flocked to them because of the joy that exuded from their hearts. You know, it is so disappointing. I mean, you read the papers, you get CNN, you get all that kind of stuff, same as I do. It is so disappointing when I read and hear about Christians and how I am described. I am described in the news media as closed-minded, judgmental, self-righteous, etc., And I'm not going to spend any time crafting a counter-argument because it's worthless and it's useless and Jesus doesn't need a spin doctor. But what I am going to do and what I admonish you to do is endeavor every single day to live his heart in the world. To live his absolute heart in the world. He entered in our brokenness. He came into our brokenness and delivered us. We enter into the brokenness in the world with his help. We don't disassociate ourselves from all those things. All those things I listed at the beginning, we don't disassociate ourselves. Christians enter into that and offer the heart of Christ, the only solution that's necessary in all the world, to those who are on the most difficult path. Now, one last thing I want to share with you. And I know, Pastor Keith and I say one last thing, you probably figure, okay, only 15 more minutes left, but that's not what I mean here. In the hymnal, well, for, the one last thing I want to share with you is that communion is a statement of our unity. Communion is a statement of our unity. In our hymnal, there is this hymn called One Bread, One Body. And the first verse goes like this. One bread, one body, one Lord of all. One cup of blessing which we bless. And we, though many throughout the earth, we are one body in this one Lord. You see, this one Lord came for all of us. It doesn't matter if you make minimum wage or the maximum wage. 
It doesn't matter if you're completely together right now or entirely broken. It is the same substance, the bread of your life given for you, whoever you are at whatever stage and place you're at. You know, it's the same substance for me and you. And it also doesn't matter whether you're making minimum wage or maximum wage, whether you're the most educated or the least educated among us, whether you're the wisest or the dullest among us. It's the same words. This is for you. For you. Now, we are equally flawed in our God's... I mean, we are equally flawed in our lives, and so we gladly need to rest in our God's embrace. You know... We so often, and, and by the way, way, we have to move away from this. We are so often in pursuit of perfection. I taught a kid a number of years ago that went to work for, sadly, he went to work for Hostess, and he's out in uh, Massachusetts. But he ran the factory or helped run the factory where they made the Hostess cupcakes. You know those delicious, horrible little treats? You know what I'm talking about? The, the, the chocolate ones, they got the filling, and they got that plastic-like frosting across the top. And, and four, four, perfect swirls. Now, there's eight points on those perfect swirls, according to my friend. And when you go down to the factory and watch those being made, if there's not exactly eight points on those swirls, they go into the reject line, and about 10% of what they make gets rejected because the swirls are not perfect. And they go out to the uh, discount stores that you and I shop at, you know, or used to shop at, for hostess gave up the ghost. Their pursuit for perfection was so sincere but they were willing to throw away some of the good stuff because they taste the same. Our Lord Jesus knows that there's no perfect swirls on us. You understand what I'm saying? We're, we're flawed. And our flaws aren't the same. Your flaws are not my flaws. Their flaws are not your flaws. They're not the same. But understand this, my friend. They are equal. They are equal. Because the Lord Jesus came to deliver you, came to deliver me, and he brings this image before us of communion, which is a great leveler that makes all people as important as every other person. And every single one of us is standing at the foot of that cross in need of grace. So communion, one of the most important things we do in our lives, is going to commence... In just a minute. Take it seriously today, would you please?